Hey, 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 good morning, folks. Welcome back to the Folkcraft Revival Podcast. Once again, talking uh, traditional skills, traditional craft, learn something, build something, make something, figure out how things work. It's an awesome week. Um, been fairly busy for me, actually, which is surprising because I thought this week would be fairly dead, but uh, we went and picked a neighbor's apricots and have been making apricot jam and drying a bunch right now, so barely got them in time. They had basically started getting overripe and dropping off the tree, but busy doing that, uh, doing a couple of woodworking projects. I'm redoing one of my old bows. Uh, I made it probably a decade ago or so when I was a little newer to bow making. So I'm uh, shortening it and I'm going to heat treat. It's a hickory board bow. I'm going to heat treat it, make the handle a little thinner because I've, I've determined over the years I like a little thinner of a handle than that shorten it, uh, try and make it a little more efficient because um, it was just a little overbuilt. I mean, I was very happy to make a shootable bow back then, but it was a little overbuilt, and I'm going to see if I can make it a little more efficient. If not, I'm going to snap it, so we'll see what happens. Also on that note, archery season is starting this weekend. Um, I did not grow up hunting. I only started hunting about uh, four or five, five years ago, maybe. Um, I got my first big game tag. Last year was the first time I actually shot anything. It's been a huge learning curve and I've been excited learning, learning how to hunt. Um, I'm doing it the slow and unintelligent way by teaching myself instead of finding a mentor, but, uh, you know, whatever works, huh? So yeah, I'm excited to be out spending a little more time out looking for elk over the next couple of weeks. We'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, this, ep- this week's episode, um, it's a real exciting one for me. I, I've mentioned before that I really got my interest in traditional skills and knowledge, um, uh, by my introduction to wilderness survival, um, primarily through Larry Olson's book, Outdoor Survival Skills and Tom Brown Jr.'s book, uh, Field Guide to Wilderness Survival. And that sparked my interest and sparked a lot of projects in the backyard and whatnot. So the primitive skills world has always held an appeal for me and still does. Um, they are like the base, base knowledge, base skills that we all evolved from and all it, it kept us all alive. And that being said, throwing sticks are likely one of the most, uh, one of the earliest hunting weapons there is. I mean, there's, uh, nothing more natural than, than picking a, a stick up and throwing it if you can't quite get close enough to an animal to hit it with a club. So um, I'm real excited about this one because I've I've dabbled with throwing sticks a couple times, trying to make some that are uh, have a little better flight characteristics. Won't say I've done great at that, but um, I know it's possible, and and I enjoy seeing ones that fly well. So I reached out to Michael Frank, and he runs the company, uh, Aquacon Paleotechnics. And, uh, I, I discovered him on, on Instagram. So, uh, I came across some of his work. He puts out some, some gorgeous photos of some of the, the reproductions he's making. Um, he's an archeologist by trade and does a lot of, uh, a lot of reproductions and, uh, trying to figure out museum pieces and whatever. Gorgeous pictures though. And he, uh, also puts out a fair number of 
pictures and videos of throwing sticks he's making and, and testing. So uh, I thought I'd reach out to him and we do an episode about throwing sticks and uh, a little bit about the archaeology and, and uh, history of them and how to make one. Really fun episode. Um, and I really appreciate Michael's attitude about needing to make and use these implements in order to really understand the, uh, the archaeology and the people that made the artifacts that you see in museums and that, um, that are excavated. Because I, I definitely agree that it is hard to really understand the people if you don't really know how their tools are, are made and used and have some sort of functional grasp on that. So I really appreciate that attitude. In fact, I, I, I almost didn't go to college. Uh, I almost pursued some of these older skills instead because they've always fascinated me. But I chose to go to college and got a degree in wildlife biology. No regrets there. Loved it. Loved learning about um, animals. I've always, I've always loved animals and being outside in nature. So uh, it, it, was, it was a natural choice for me. Uh, I got a second, secondary degree in, in rangeland management, which is basically plant soils and grazing management. But that being said, if I had not gone that route, just talking with Michael and, and having looked at some things in the past, I really could have seen myself going the experimental archaeology or the anthropology route, um, just getting to understand some of these tools and implements and uh, the history. It's just, oh, it's, it's just fascinating. So I loved it. Um, loved the episode. I learned quite a bit and it was good to uh, talk things through and, and learn quite a bit about this. Um, really, what is probably one of our, our earliest uh, hunting implements. So yeah, um, go ahead and check out show notes over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash 22. Can't believe we're on the 22nd episode already. Over there, you'll uh, you'll find links to everything we mentioned, including, you know, Michael's, his website, his Instagram, uh, his YouTube, uh, the, you know, like the, the Smithsonian Museum's online catalog, that was something we mentioned, um, et cetera, et cetera. We'll put it, I'll put it all up um, over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash 22. Really appreciate you taking the time to listen. It means a bunch to me. If you want to help out at all, uh, a little more, go ahead and just uh, leave a rating or review. Uh, it really, really makes a difference for the way other people can discover this uh, podcast. That being said, also, even better than that is just telling people that are interested in this type of thing about the podcast. It's so much easier, word of mouth. Um, also, I'd, I'd love to hear from any of you if you have a guest suggestion or a topic suggestion, something you would like to, to learn about, shoot me an email, daniel at folkcraftrevival.com. Love to hear from you. With that said, let's go ahead and jump into the episode. The audio cuts out a little abruptly at the end. Uh, I kind of got sidetracked and we started talking a little bit about Michael's website and his business, and I decided I would just remove that from the end of the episode. So uh, I know it's abrupt, um, but we we kind of strayed away from throwing six at that point and started delving into or talking about some other stuff. So figured I'd save you all a little bit of time. Thanks again for listening. Let's jump in where I had asked Michael about his his start in primitive skills and how he got interested and involved in this type of thing. 
Well, it it first started with my grandmother, who always wanted to be an archaeologist. But back back in those days, she was a military officer's wife. The uh, I think often the um, mothers and grandmothers didn't get to follow their own career. She was a she was fascinated with archaeology and ancient cultures and used to give me books as a child. And um, one of the books she gave me was uh, Larry Dean Olson's Outdoor Survival Skills. And I found um, the books by the uh, Tracker School, Tom Brown Jr., and, and attended everything I could. I was fascinated with uh, archaeology and ancient cultures and the technology, which when we go back far enough is common to everybody, how how we um, how we learn to live and the amazing things people were doing with the natural materials and their environment. And then it kept me so busy. Um, imagine you're the same way when once you start uh, playing around with those, you'll you'll never be bored for the rest of your life. There's a million. There's always a new project. <laughs> yeah. And those those and I found that those projects weren't just fun. They always involved uh, history, uh, science, uh, engineering and and and. Here I am, and um, it's never been old for a minute. Hmm. That yeah, sounds like an interesting uh, start. So it was your grandmother that got you into it, then, huh? And yeah. you grew up. You grew up in Virginia, right? That's right, uh, Northern Virginia. We're near uh, Manassas, so it's uh, it's far enough away, about thirty miles from uh, Washington D.C., where I was lucky to get a job at the Natural History Museum there to. Uh, to get a chance to foster these skills, but um, it's there's enough um, uh, natural environment here on the Occoquan Reservoir. I live on on the edge of that to uh, to get to practice some of these survival skills over the course of my life. Yeah, can you describe kind of what your business does now? Um, yeah, it's uh, what it, I previously worked in the in the archaeology field. Uh, I was I studied archaeology in college. And was at archaeology field school in uh, James Madison's uh, Montpelier uh, back in the 90s. And I, I heard about a job volunteering at the Smithsonian for moving archaeology collections out of the old building and into the uh, into a, a new storage facility. Sort of like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where they put everything away in these giant warehouses. And I jumped at the chance to get to see some of the things I'd been reading about my whole life uh, in person. Yeah. There's an awful lot of stuff in the Smithsonian. You could see some really cool stuff in there. Oh, it's great, Daniel. For every thing on display, there's thousands back in storage examples. And most people will never get to see them. And that's um, one of the, the missions of my business with replicas and molding and casting is to try to get that information out to more people and make, make our uh, our history and prehistory more available to everybody. So after uh, decades working there and getting to uh, see these things, um, I, I really wanted to learn everything I could and uh, study with the best instructors and, and meet people that would come in, uh, Native Americans, other scholars, people would come in to study these things and learn everything I could. And I started replicating those those items as close as I could uh, sometimes for study in the, uh, in the archeology span program, the uh, flint napping was often used for um, uh, study examples or to learn how the processes were done. And eventually I put a, 
website out for archaeology art for places for um for people to buy uh replicas but also i realized there was the scientific community wanted scientific casts of artifacts that they couldn't get in their part of the world and it became a business that basically the, the basic mission is to bring archaeology out of the you know dusty old drawers back in museums that maybe aren't accessible and and get it out to um everybody you get a much better sense of history when you get to see or feel something that in person rather than just you know, yeah, we know something exists in a museum or whatever. If you could actually fill it and use it or something like that, it's, it changes things. Um, so yeah, making a replica so people could do that and, you know, not be playing with the original, but, uh, yeah, fill and touch and see the, the replica. That's, that's great. It's, um, it's amazing the the things that, that come to life when you do hold something, uh, that, one of the defining moments in my business was I was at a uh, swim meet for my, uh, my children. <clears throat> and I noticed one of the other parents had an anthropology book out. They were studying for um, uh, online class, uh, something they were doing for at the local community college. And there was a picture in the book of a stone tool. It was a, uh, a core of Flint core for making knife blades um, for cutting tools. And, um, I looked at the picture and I, I kind of laughed and I, and I, I said to the other parent, I said, does that, does that really make sense? What that is from that picture? And, um, and this lady laughed and looked back at me like, no, of course not. I'm just looking at a rock. (laughs) (laughs) That is. And she kind of laughed at it. It's like, Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. That makes no sense. So the next day I brought in one of my own replica flint cores with some blades knocked off and I, I placed them together and I showed how uh, I brought an antler hammer and I, I said, this is hit here and this flake comes off and see how sharp this is. And we cut a piece of uh, leather with it and the light bulb went off. He said, oh, yeah. now I know what I'm looking at. Now this makes sense. The, it just came to life for me. And, and it was that moment where I, I put the, uh, that theme miss, mission of the business it's the subtitle of under the under the business is bringing archaeology to life. It was, I realized what I wanted to do at that moment. So do you spend quite a bit of time teaching others then? Um, not in formal classes uh, here. I don't have uh, classes, but I'm often a guest in um, anthropology classrooms and uh, primitive technology or archaeology outdoor events. Yeah. And, and try to show anybody interested what, um, how to help them have that same experience where they can hold something in their hand and have that light bulb go off. Oh, this is how. This is how it works. Yeah. There's a difference between making a reproduction of an artifact and just making something similar. Cause most of what I do, I, I don't do really reproductions. I just make things. If I'm going to make say a pot, I just make a pot. I don't try and reproduce a specific pot. And it seems like a lot of what you do is doing reproductions of a specific artifact. Is that true? Yeah. You know, um, you asked about, uh, throwing sticks and, uh, that, uh, not the non-returning boomerang as a, as an example of this, it's a really good one. Cause if, um, if I, if I was able to examine one in the museum and just have its measurements, I might try 
you know, it, it would, it might be hang, hung on the wall and look the same, but um, to make it work is uh, requires the field experience. I would, and yeah. for every skill, I try to look for um, experts in that field who actually uh, do those, those skills. And for, for museum hunting sticks, uh, throwing sticks, usually just meant to go around the world, usually meant to go in just one direction for hunting, not, um, a sport returning uh, modern boomerang, but I would turn to those those experts to see how airfoils work, to see how um, how things go in the air. They knew the physics of it, they knew the contours, and then I would compare that with museum examples and try to see what what they were doing and yeah, dig out the people that had researched that field and try to bring all those elements to the surface too. So it was a uh, so the, uh, if an object becomes a functional replica, that's when the that archaeology really comes to life. Have you found very many people uh, in this scientific field studying throwing sticks? Not many, but there it turns out there there were a few. There's a um, uh, a legend in the field of experimental archaeology, primitive technology. Doctor Eric Callahan. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. I, I found him yeah. as a, um, as someone who was teaching classes. He had an academic archaeology background, but also a life of testing. And it turns out in the mid seventies, he did a ton of tests on, on throwing stick technology and it was never fully published. And, um, one of my goals is to bring that light to work. I want to give him credit for his groundbreaking work on that. He he tested every everything in the field starting from the very beginning. And when I mean very beginning, as if he was going through the evolution of of human testing from the beginning of time. He would start with a a basic stick, like just a round straight stick and say, "Okay, let's test all different lengths, different weights, and just see what happens. And he would figure out, and he would kind of wring the scientific truth out of that. This this one's too short, this one's too long, What's and find out what's ideal, and have a bunch of people testing and throwing. And, and then after months of that, an ideal length would, would arrive, and then test different weights. And then after months of testing, an ideal weight would, would show up. And then eventually come to the you know it's like going through the human testing for thousands of years all over again and come up with some ideal dimensions and then compare them to the to museum pieces that he was aware of and after uh years he was able to start getting things to work like the ethnology reports say uh like australian aborigines and see and he was starting to get similar results that's uh I always appreciate the people who do the work like that. Cause I don't know that I would have had the patience to <laughs> test and test and test and test that many times. I probably would have jumped a little further to the end and be like, ah, here's a museum piece. Let's make one that's similar in size and weight to that one. And then, well, I sort of did that yeah. <laughs> play with it, play with it and try and make it work from there. But I always yeah, appreciate I, the people who go through all the work to figure out the ideals, you know, having some basic principles that you can apply really does make a, a huge difference. Um, when they share those, uh, my exposure to throwing sticks actually primarily comes through, um, uh, primitive technology, a book of earth skills. And there's a, like a two page article or something like that, that Eric Callahan wrote about throwing sticks. 
Um, and that's been my exposure to throwing zigs. I've made half a dozen of them or something like that. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's quite fun. And I don't know that mine fly very well, but it's, it's been a learning process and I enjoy making them. So I have that same book right here. And, um, that is how I started the conversation with Callahan about his work. He passed away about a year ago. And um, be- before he did, I just started uh, working on throwing sticks. And I, because I saw that he had done that work in the back, it's, it's in that book, Primitive Technology. And um, I said, Eric, this is amazing. I want to bring this work back to the surface. And if, if you look at that article... Uh, at the very end, it talks about he used the sum of his knowledge to make a a special stick uh, that was a test of everything, and it it, it went uh, hundreds of yards. It was amazing. It was uh, I think set a world distance record at the time, and um, and because he knew I was trying to get his work out, he he gave that stick to me. I have it here. Oh wow! <laughs> Send you some uh, some pictures later, and. Um, so I, I'm definitely um, I'm standing on the shoulders of a few people that have uh, done a lot of the work in front of me. Mm-hmm. I think most of us are at this point, but uh, yeah, it's always good to um, recognize them. And it is um, I'm kind of sad I started this podcast a little too late because there are a couple giants in the field that have been passing on recently. Um, you know, him and Jim Riggs and. In fact, Larry Olson, um, I'm kind of sad I didn't get a chat with some of these guys before they were gone. Yeah, the same way. It's a, Yeah, it's a little too late, but uh, I guess we can do them some honor by bringing their uh, groundbreaking work to the surface. Yeah. So uh, I, I realized we kind of skipped over things. We jumped directly from how you got involved in primitive skills to talking about uh, your archaeology as a as a business and uh going to school for archaeology how did you progress from you know being introduced to things by your grandmother to uh going to school for archaeology how did that come about i would the subject was the closest thing that i could come to in school (laughs) for um for what i was passionate about when i was when i was growing up um it was more about primitive skills and survival yeah when i was in an archaeology class in college, I saw they were showing uh, film strips, and when they <laughs> when they still had film strips with actual projectors, and that would, probably phasing out by the nineties, but um, they were showing a field I'd never heard of before called experimental archaeology, and I was like, oh wow, there was a film of Dr. Dennis Stanford at the Smithsonian. He was testing out atlatl technology, where he had. In, in this particular uh, clip, there was uh, a target with a computer hooked up to it, and he was throwing spears into darts into this target and testing the impact. And I was um, hooked from that moment. I was like, oh, my, oh, I can't believe it. You can make a career out of testing the things I've been playing with. My- <laughs> but that was the moment. That was it. I remember it clear as day. I was like, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I'm going to do. I want to follow that. So. I should have mentioned that earlier. I talked about uh, seeing a volunteer position at the Smithsonian and I realized, well, that's where Dr. Stanford works. Um, I could go there and meet him and tell him that story. So um, 
And that's indeed what happened. When I, when I got to the museum as a volunteer, I found out eventually uh, they needed people and I, I got hired. It's an intro job moving archaeology collections. And then I would volunteer for uh, digs that the Paleo-Indian Archaeology Program, Dr. Stanford's program, was doing. And got to uh, dig with them in the field and I learned to mold and cast artifacts. And uh, Stanford had a uh, history of decades living with the, the Eskimos up north um, around the Bering Strait and learning how to hunt with stone tools and wood tools. And, and he had a very experimental archaeology um, uh, attitude toward his, his work where he thought, to understand archaeology, you should really know how those things were used in ancient times. And that, that affected my, um, uh, my skills and the work I did and the mission. And, um, Dr. Stanford passed away a year ago too, just within weeks of Dr. Callahan too. But two mentors die within a month of each other. It was really, I uh, really thought that was a time to then dive into this biz- business and, and shed light on their, their work and use it, you know, give them credit, but then go in my own directions of, getting archaeology out to uh, everybody interested. Yeah, that would be hard. Um, it sounds like a fascinating experience for him, though, to uh, be living up in the Arctic and uh, really get to see how a lot of these technologies were still used and whatnot up there. That's that's fascinating. Especially with, with atlatl technology. He uh, actually participated in um, making the atlatls, hunting with them by, by canoe and boat or kayak and boat and, uh, with the actual tools that um, um, the Inuits were using there. So it's a perfect background to, uh, to understanding. So not many people get an experience like that. Uh, there was one thing I wanted to mention uh, when you were talking about working at the Smithsonian. Um, I discovered their online catalog probably about a year ago. And uh, I didn't know that you could go through their online catalog. I was actually searching for something and found the the Utah Museum of Natural History online catalog. I was like, oh, this is cool. And I browsed there for a couple hours and I was like, hey, if, if they have an online catalog, I wonder what a bigger one does. So I, I jumped on Smithsonian's website and they have an online catalog too that people can go through and search for whatever they want to whatever they want to see and see some examples of, get some measurements, get some pictures. It's quite fascinating. I spent quite a bit of time on there. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm glad they're getting it out. Everybody, original ideas that... Um it should be for not just uh, people hidden away in a museum, but it should be out there for everybody to access. So I'm glad you're doing that. That's great. They still have a lot of it that's not uh, online yet. Not surprising. I mean, they have a lot of stuff, but it'll pull up. You know, we have X number of results, and these are the ones you can see pictures of and get measurements of and whatever. So, yeah, it's 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 quite fun. Um, what would you say – draws you towards the the primitive skills and the archaeology what about it appeals to you oh that's a that's a great question i've got it was um something i was i was touching on earlier it's not just the history but the also there's science engineering art um resourcefulness there's there's all kinds of positive characteristics that come into it uh if if you ask somebody, um, you know, why do you like doing something? Sometimes the answer is uh, is just well, it's just fun, and yeah. that might be the the spark for, for 
for primitive tech, but uh, you you realize right away that there's uh, there's engineering lessons, physics lessons, uh, all kinds of science involved, and then and then there's an art element too. Usually, uh, artifacts from around the world are not simply functional; they have uh, um, artistic elements to it too. And uh, people a, all over the world had a wonderful way to use the natural materials, beautiful natural materials in their own environment to come up with ingenious ways to uh, make things. Um, so it's also a celebration of, of uh, natural materials. It's, uh, it's got just five or six things like that all wrapped up into one. And you, and then and, and as an end result, the history comes to life to better understand um, everybody's history. It's a very unifying thing too. It's um I don't know if you know, any um if I come from any particular culture, just um you know, my, my DNA research would just show people you know, my ancestry goes from all over the world. But it's uh, the most the further you go back, the more universal it is. Uh, stone tools. Everybody everybody in the world comes back from a culture that was using stone tools and throwing sticks. And I find that uh fascinating. That's probably the bottom line thing that drives me there. Yeah. Uh, you just mentioned that that everyone in the world comes from a, a history of throwing sticks, and that was kind of what I wanted to chat with you about today. But were were they really historically used globally? That's that is certainly the the idea, the supposition. It's a uh, the the main moder- the material used would be wood, and we all know wood doesn't last the way um, stone tools do. So um, where we have a you know, the a record, a solid record to study with stone tools, let's say uh, arrowhead collectors and spearhead collectors. Uh, we don't have the, the wood, uh, any, any, any kind of wood material past 10,000 years old is uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty hard to, to have in the, in the record, but it's, um, but we have all the uh, paleo stone tools and the woods disappeared. So they, um, the idea is right along with uh, the first cutting tools, and this is going back now hundreds of thousands of years that um, the ability to throw something would be part of the hunting experience. And if you pick up a rock, it's got a very, and throw it <laughs> starting like really basic here. That would be, um, it'd be hard to uh, have any accuracy and modern tests show that with people too. It's like, I can put a, put a target uh, 15 yards away, try to hit with a rock or a stick. And uh, it's, it's much easier, vastly improved if you, if you throw a stick. And once, once you see that, you realize this must have been part of the early uh, hunting experience. A stick is uh, something you can dig in the ground with, too, and move brush, tend the fire. And it's, um, it's such a universal tool that we, we figure that's got to go right along hand with uh, earliest stone tools. Yeah, and it's, it really does make sense as, a, as really like our beginnings as hunters, too. I mean... Like you were talking about a stick and a rock, those those have got to be our most basic hunting implements. Um, yeah, start learning to to get something that's a little out of reach. You can't quite jab it, so you end up throwing something at it. And it's kind of a shame that we don't get artifacts that last that long that we don't have any examples of. But yeah, it's a it's a very natural progression to um, to go from the most basic stone tools to sticks they're they're available you can you can cut them to shape with stone tools and uh it's something we're playing around with here a little bit too is breaking uh larger rocks into uh edges that 
that can cut sticks into shape really quick. In in the archaeology, there's this, and this is a good uh, reason that I got back into throwing sticks. It's not just something I tried when I was young into a, an academic study. Was uh, in the '90s, I think late '90s, they they found a an ivory example that looked like a throwing stick in a cave in Poland, the Oblazawa cave in, in Poland. Uh, there was a throwing stick that, that matched every way uh, Dr. Callahan's uh, found perfect dimensions of a, of a, of a hunting stick. And it matched very well with some um, more modern Australian pieces. And it looked like it had all the contours. It had a grooved, uh, or a cross-hatched uh, grip for a handle, and it stayed in the archaeological record. It didn't wear away because it was ivory and not wood. Yeah. There was some arguments whether it was just a ceremonial piece, and what was it? They they did call it a boomerang because of the measurements, the angles, and how it matched up with some Australian pieces. Um, and I decided, I saw that in an archaeology journal. I wanted to test it. And um Right away, I realized the contours matched actual ethnographic throwing sticks from that were still around in the last couple hundred years. Yeah. And then you could see the handle cross-hatched on the right side. It's got a flat bottom side and a curved top like modern sticks. And I'm like, and it just became evident, oh, this thing is definitely, even if this one was ceremonial, ceremonial it shows the the aerodynamic knowledge, the contours, the, uh, the airfoils uh, knowledge. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. So in test immediately worked very well. Uh, just a replica I did um, in wood first went immediately went over uh, uh, 40, 50 yards straight level over the ground, <laughs> which is what a hunting stick is supposed to do. And yeah. That culture was, it turns out, I looked more into the archaeology of that culture. It turns out they were, the evidence shows that they were a caribou hunting culture. The, the same cave had caribou bones in it. And so it looks like the idea was similar to Australian Aborigines who would hunt uh, emu and kangaroo. Um, is that a heavy ballistic weapon like that thrown level across the ground would instantly break the legs of anything that it hit. <laughs> it's a ballistic power uh, device and it would, and it looks like that goes hand in hand. That's what I think they were doing with this. If it was used for real, um, but if not, it's a model of the wood pieces that they use that would work wonderfully for that in, the, in a similar way that Austra Australian Aborigines would use their heavy sticks. If it's made of ivory, it's got to be heavier than the normal wood sticks, right? How did you get your replica to match the weight? Uh, that, that's a great question. Dude. Uh, I realized right away when my wood example worked that I'd, I'd missed one element in the testing, and that's how heavy it was. And that was one of the criticisms too, was that, well, your wood is not heavy enough. Um, so how do we know it would still work? And I, I posed that question to, to Eric, Dr. Eric Callahan before he passed away. And his idea was that the weight would actually improve um, a ballistic throwing stick. It, it would be able to keep spinning longer and have more ballistic power. So the supposition that it would the weight would make it worse uh, was only true for modern sport returning boomerangs, not a heavy one directional hunting stick, which they're related, but they really do two different things. So I was able to use my molding and casting experience that I had from stone tools at the museum 
and I molded the the wood one I made, and I used um, a synthetic that I was able to add weight to. Okay. The weight of the um, the original ivory artifact, and um, Callahan was absolutely right. The um, the heavier version, more like ivory, um, is now going up to uh, 70, 80 yards level and straight, and it, it improved as a weapon. That's awesome. How old is this this ivory throwing stick? Oh, I'm sorry. I should mention that. That's, that was 23,000 years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So we can assume that if, if that was a very refined weapon at that age, that uh, – that around the world, uh, wood artifacts were being used, but we just we don't have them in the archaeological record. I think in Australia, there's um, they do have some wood that preserved that go back over ten thousand years or right around then, but we I think safely assume it goes back further back. <laughs> yeah, if you have a, a pretty advanced one at twenty three thousand years, you got to have at least cruder implements going back significantly longer than that. So I think so. What, what general cultures and areas of the world have like a historical known throwing stick or boomerang? Well, the, the obvious one is, uh, and, and the main one is Australia, of course, where they, yeah, a, a wonderful archeological record and into, uh, modern times with, um, a couple of uh, Aboriginal, artists now who still know how to make some uh, the old way. And, but that's quickly fading out and yeah. there's still some examples in wood we have. Um, and that's where I was lucky enough to go to see some of the originals at the museum. And, and, and what I wanted to do is study the ones that still had old stone tool marks and not modern material. So uh, that's the best example. The um, here in the Americas, we've got some, some great examples from the Southwest cultures. And uh, um, that's a good point to bring up that, of what the throwing stick is, is, is best used for is usually the, the desert environment. It needs a very open area, the desert Southwest areas. It, it's a perfect environment to use that tool. There's some in, in archeology span because of the dry environment, it saved a few of the wood pieces. So we have some of those going back up to, um, uh, 8,000 years, I think, is the uh, the oldest one we have for the Americas. Okay. And there's one in France. I think it was a looked like it was about Roman times where they that, – that one is really surprising. It's, that's an archaeological example. But um, I think worldwide, some version. Have, have you seen examples coming from grasslands? So I, I understand the desert areas. I mean, I, I live in Utah. And, yeah, you come to southern Utah, and there are a lot of jackrabbits and a lot of open area. So it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I just kind of curious if you get out into some of the grasslands and whatever, you're also not going to have trees and brush getting in your way, but I don't know what sort of examples there are for those type of cultures. Yeah. The, you know what? There is a good example of that. The, um, is the, the Egyptian bird hunting throwing sticks, um, is a, is, is a great, and all the, all the depictions on, uh, tombs, hieroglyphs show, um, the Egyptian version. And this is, that's pretty far back in archaeology. That's older than you know, uh, older than three thousand years ago for sure. That um, shown in the uh, in tomb art of of throwing sticks used in in grassy marshlands for for birds. It's okay, and they're a little more. Most of these are a little more like clubs um, than long distance throwers. But um, 
but some look very much like the Australian ones in our, our uh, American uh, rabbit sticks. It's probably, and these are in Egypt. Uh, King Tut's tomb had 20, uh, more than 20 examples of throwing sticks in King Tut's tomb. And um, many of them look like Australian pieces or, or our, our American rabbit sticks and some like clubs. But the depictions show grassland um, marshy areas. More like duck hunting or something like that? Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like, yeah, they are pretty universal then uh, for open areas, at least pretty useful hunting tool. Um, can we dive into to talking about making one? Oh, you bet. My favorite subject. Uh, to start with, what, what general characteristics are we looking for in a, in a wood or a branch or, or what, what are we looking for in a piece that we're selecting to start with? All right. Well, here's a great start. And I had this when I was, um, in my early twenties, I was taking classes at the the tracker school in New Jersey, and one of, one of the items covered was the basic throwing stick. And we'd we'd start with a round stick that was pretty straight that would go. That's about the length of your arm. That was about, I think, uh, uh, twenty four inches or anywhere between twenty and twenty four. And to to hone skill, we'd play very fun games, and that that was a big influence in my in my work, um, having something, a swinging target, like a string of the milk jug and swing it back and forth around trees and try to hit it in the air. And instantly you start getting uh, good at the the skills. And, um, yeah, the one suggested by the, um, primitive skills author, Steve Watts, who also passed away recently, um, was, uh, going to a field and rolling a soccer ball across the field and hitting it with that club stick. So that is a great start. Something about, in, uh, let's say 25 inches long, about two feet long. That's a good start. And trying to hit a stick in the ground or something with just a straight throw, usually. Um, and a sideways throw is good too. It's uh, If you throw uh, vertical, a stick tends to hit the ground and bounce straight up, but a, a sideways uh, parallel with the ground tends to skip. And that's what, um, like skipping a stone across water. And that's, if somebody wanted to try to make their own, Museum pieces, a, a good resource besides uh, Google here or looking up in museum collections like you did, is to flatten it out. And it, if it's about a good rule of thumb is about two inches wide. And if it's flat, but if it's flat like a board, it tends to just flop over itself and fall, unlike a club. Yeah. Or sticks start to become bent. If you bend it more than anywhere near 90 degrees, it sort of acts like a modern boomerang and has too much gyroscopic action but uh throwing hunting throwing sticks from around the world if you want to throw in one direction at a target is usually uh callahan figured out about 135 degrees just a slight bend and that usually allows uh, the basic club to start flattening out to about a half inch or three eighths inch the bend start to have this real action like the ancient cultures had where you throw it the ground and it starts to hover over the ground and go straight for um Sometimes even rudimentary ones that aren't even finely contoured start to go over 50 yards straight. Okay. So essentially principles, then you're, you're looking for something that's just over two feet long or so, two inches wide, and with a little bit of a curve to it. Um, let's see, 135 degrees is basically halfway between straight and 90 degree for people that aren't, aren't good with angles. I wondered how to describe that. Yeah, it's a, just a slight bend, but not... A 90-degree bend or something like that would be too much. What general wood properties are you looking for? 
Does it matter what type of wood you use or what sort of characteristics in the wood you're using? Very important things to mention there. Crucial, in fact, is uh, if you if you take a straight board, let's say you had a um, an oak board that was um, half inch thick, and you just and you traced out a a throwing stick blank on that and cut it out, it will usually break right away because the the angle is uh, violated. Um, you can you can cut boards to shape um, as a furniture maker because it it st- sits in a uh, fixed position in your in your house and doesn't bend or have impact. But uh, the impact of a throw usually will break a board. So there's two solutions to that. The native cultures around the world would use a natural elbow bend in in a tree limb and follow. And the rule is to follow the the grain of a natural bend. And usually that's strong enough to um, have the wood grain not be violated so that it would break on impact. Uh, the modern answer is plywood, uh, craft plywood, like uh, called marine plywood that you'd make boating uh, materials out of. Uh, the grain is crisscrossed in a way that, that it doesn't break on impact. And the the species is um, is important. It has to be uh, dense. If you use something very light, like you would for a boomerang, uh, re- modern sport boomerangs need to be light so they stay in the air a long time and return. But um, for throwing stick practice, for hunting style, what we learned earlier was that they need to be heavy and strong. And uh, species that um, species that work for uh, bow making, the things that um, the hard ones like. Uh, Hickory, uh, black locust, uh, the ones that are the heavier, denser woods. Okay. So that's, that's a good, a good thing for people to look for. You're looking for a, a natural bend in a branch, an elbow from a dense, whatever dense hardwood you have in your area. Is there any, um, I know when you're making like ash splint basketry or something like that, you pound them and they come across, they delaminate along the growth rings. Do you need to avoid specific types of wood like that? Will they come apart when you start throwing them and impacting on on your target? There is a lot of impact in these. So even and even Aboriginal cultures had the exact same problem. Uh, there things tend to uh, uh, delaminate, come come apart uh, along grain lines when they have impact. So all you can do is um, is lessen that as much as you can, and by following those earlier rules, the uh, the less violated something is. If you can find a natural branch that's uh, between one and a half and two inches wide and has a tight bend, then you've solved 90% of the problems uh, right there. Okay. It, it's kind of fun to go out, out into the woods and look for um, tree branches, especially if they've already fallen and they've, if they've dried out a little bit, they're not rotten, and, and find these bends and see if you can make six out of them watching their properties. That's that's part of the fun uh, for me. Is it? I, I was kind of curious. The, the woods I have around here, so you mentioned oak and hickory and black locust, and those are all uh, ring porous hardwoods where you get um, kind of big open rings. I don't have woods like that around here. Most of what we have, you're going to have things like choke cherry and service berry and maple, and those are really our hardwoods. I know they're not as hard as a lot of eastern hardwoods, but I was just wondering, since since those aren't ring porous, would they actually hold up better when they're impacting something? They're not going to be as dense, but they're also not going to have uh as weak of a of a ring yeah yeah i do know what you mean the uh a diffuse porous uh maple if it's hard rock maple it's um it would would probably be great i haven't used that one here we don't have hmm. that 
species. We have red maple uh, here where I live, but it's a little too light. Okay. So um, your uh, maple and uh, choke cherry uh, uh, berry woods might, yeah, might work out great. It's it's really fun to um, to experiment. Um, but you're right; those might tend to split less. That's a good that's a good idea. Uh, I was just kind of curious about that. Wasn't sure if that was something you had tested at all, but I guess I'm going to have to play around with it. Um, okay, so we're looking for something that's has a natural elbow, two inches wide, a little over two feet long, from a hard, dense wood. Uh, how do you go about shaping it from there? Ah, there's a there's a really good start to that. Uh, imagine if you if you had a two inch diameter branch with with that with a slight bend in it, and you uh, split it right down the middle. You'll have um, two pieces, and, and there'll be a flat side and a slightly curved side, which is the which is the outside of the um, the original branch. Yeah, that that curved or domed side becomes the top. So if you were to throw it level with the ground, that curved side is the top, and and air air flows over. Here's where I had to learn from modern boomerang um, makers and from the aviation industry how how a wing creates lift. And this was fascinating. That goes back to your early question: why interest in in archaeology, primitive technology? You learn all these uh, physics and science lessons from doing this, and uh, I, I learned from that study that 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 is how a giant metal, you know multi-ton airplane can fly in the in the air because the wings as heavy as they are have great lift by their by the contours on the wing the um in uh in short if uh air flows faster over the top dome than it does the flat bottom and because there's a differential airspeed there and pressure it creates a um a low pressure system over the wing and it it creates lift it's uh it's still amazing to me how that works, but or how this was understood tens of thousands of years ago. But uh, maybe it was a trial and error. You throw it upside down, it, you know, it didn't go far, but you have the dome side up, and all of a sudden it lifts in the air, and it seems to counteract gravity. And um, and a heavy stick that you would think is just going to fall to the ground can hover over the ground for forty yards just just by splitting a stick in half and having the dome side up. Even that simple with, with that dramatic of a dome, huh? Without flattening it at all? Yeah, that's a start. And you see that, um, and that was fun to play around with too. You could start with a roughed out stick and just throw it and see what happens. You dome side up, it goes, it might go up in the air and then the other side down and it, and it kind of drops. And, um, and then you start thinning out. And that's, that's the way to go about this process for fun is to then test it as you slowly thin it out and see what happens to it. You'll, you'll start to make it a little more flat. And the end dimension is going to be sort of like a lens, uh, just lenticular. Uh, not perfectly flat on the bottom, but sort of a little more domed on top. But but every, there's always a convexity of everything. If, if you threw a square board, it wouldn't work. You could think like the wings of an airplane. If you can pick, everybody can picture at least a little bit what an airplane wing looks like. It's, it's very rounded. Um, there's no sharp corners. You, you want to make sure you're not throwing just like a board form out there. You uh, smooth out the edges, sort of make it like a lens shape. Mm-hmm. Okay. How, how thick are are you aiming for if you're going for an optimum 
Yeah, it's a great question. There, there was an optimum that Callahan found in the 70s in his test and that I um, found the same thing when going over sticks from all over the world, the, uh, the Australian Aborigine sticks and the American Southwest rabbit sticks. They usually get thinned down to about three-eighths of an inch. Okay. So Callahan suggested a good start of roughing out any piece you want to try to about a half inch and then start rounding it off, sanding it off, um, a little more domed on top and and testing and fixing until until you're about three-eighths of an inch thick in the middle. How does your uh, dome on top, um, so you throw these things with the curve facing forward and with an airfoil, usually your leading edge, you have a little dome and then it trails back to the, to the trailing tip. How does that change when you're because because it's going to rotate and then your handle the other side of it is going to be the leading edge as you rotate right? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I'm glad that you've you've delved into that before. These are those are all issues that I had to figure out and research and figure out what was going on. Yeah, there's um unlike an airplane, you think of imagine two airplane wings. They they both have a leading edge that's that's very obvious. It's going forward, but um, a throwing stick is spinning so. There's a there's a main leading edge, which is the if you're if you have your hand is holding on to the handle, the far edge, the far tip is the leading edge. It's got more of an effect than your handle. Meaning okay. so one half of the boomerang is cutting into the air, the other half is just trailing behind it. So um the handle is less important to shape than that leading edge. That's the one where you want a where you really have to um take care of how you're shaping. And and you mentioned an airplane wing, it's got a little more dome at the leading edge, the one going into the wind. But if you make a throwing stick exactly like that airplane wing, it might have too much lift and go straight up into the air. So <laughs> I also found out these were amazingly complex. It, it, it used to be the idea that a simple throwing stick was the forerunner of the boomerang. But it turns out that it is, and this is a, a key thing for your, your listeners here. The throwing stick is harder to make correctly than a modern boomerang because make something go straight level where you point it for a hundred yards over the ground is harder to do. I've definitely noticed that in just a few that I've made. I mean, I won't say that I've spent a lot of time researching or practicing or really delving into this or anything, but the last one I made, um, it definitely has a curve to the right. Um, my dude too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so if I, if I was within 15, 20 yards of a rabbit, it wouldn't matter. But if I'm going for a distance throw, mine is not a straight level flight by any means. Well, here's, this brings in some wonderful points to what I said earlier. One thing I love about primitive technology is how, how complex and how much there is to, to learn. Just like you, Daniel, my pieces would always have a curve to the right. And I asked a few experts, and I, I want to give credit to uh, Benjamin Scott in California. He has a uh, a website called throwsticks.com where he has done decades of research into these problems. And, um, and he's one of the shoulders that I definitely stood on to learn some of these things. And I learned from Callahan that what I thought was a simple stick and what even the archaeology community thought was just a stick – turns out to have all these complex um, measurements to it. I can think of there was like 16 different 
measurements to be aware of when I started. And one of those is, um, is a skew, is a twist. The, this um, gentleman, Benjamin Scott, helped me out. He said, well, if your sticks turn to the right, he had noticed that the Aborigines in Australia had a slight negative skew to the end tip, meaning it was bent down a little bit. And that cures sticks going off to the right. Okay. And it's it's amazing. And what and Callahan had had witnessed in a in an old film of an Australian Aborigine who was holding his throwing stick over the coals of a fire and bending the last couple, you know, putting his hand with a leather pad over the last four or five inches and tilting it down a little bit. And then I, I had the, the joy of going through museum collections, seeing that many of the pieces had that skewed tip to it. And um, just to make that clear again is imagine a flat board uh, laying on a table and it's and in the far end away from your handle is, is flat. If you heat that far end over the coals till it's really warm and just bend it down a little bit so the tip to so the leading edge into the wind points down a little bit, it will um, – Instead of it'll help your stick instead of flying off to the right at the end to stay level. It's a uh, it, it's amazing how much uh, science went into uh, the making of these even thousands of years ago. Does that mean if you bend it too far down, it'll start curving left? Yes, <laughs> or down into the ground. So it's a uh, and th- this that goes back to what I was saying earlier. This is very complex to to get to the level of uh, a, a hunting culture. It was never as simple as just a, and that's why I got into this. You asked that earlier uh, too. The the joy of this is uh, showing the world that it's not, this technology is, um, is not just uh, a crude caveman throwing a club. Um, There's science that goes back thousands of years. And, um, and you don't have to know any of that to enjoy some of the, uh, to to even start this. If anybody wanted to start um, learning about this skill or having fun in the backyard, that a simple, stick about as long as your arm uh, is an amazing tool it would be as a survival school you'd be able uh, uh, tool you'd be able to hunt a uh, small game as a it's an archaeological tool it's a, it's an intro to all those other things we discussed um you can go as far as you enjoy and as a game <laughs> it's very fun to uh take to the fields and uh knock sticks down and try to hit moving targets and endless fun there yeah I'm already excited. I have a few more ideas now for ones I want to try. So uh, I may have to go heat the tip of the one I, I made last most recently and give it a bend and see what happens with it when I do. Um, are there any other like general principles like that for people to know? You know if, you, if you bend your tip down, it'll go a little more left. I, I assume that means if you bend it up, it curves more to the right. Um, any other like general rules or principles or or uh, thoughts on things like that? Yes, indeed. Um, the the big surprise in this was when I started this, I thought, how how am I going to make a, a rough stick able to defy gravity and float across? But the exact opposite happened. The tendency is to, that these things often, even a barely roughed out stick will have too much lift and fly straight up into the air. And oh. <laughs> So the, the surprise tip is to not make it too much like a modern boomerang, which is uh, was the exact opposite of what I thought when this, this started. I, I guess I was, I was guilty of those misconceptions 
myself that these throwing sticks would be crude clubs that would just go a couple feet and fall down to the ground. So um, the, the earlier recommendations uh, follow is to not is to not make it like a modern boomerang. It's as if you want to make a historical throwing stick to go level across the field. Usually, only a slight bend in the stick is is needed. If it's if it's too straight, it'll flutter and flop to the ground like a board. I guess it's it's hard to illustrate in audio, but a 135 degree bend. If if um, if listeners need to look that up, but it's a, that's that's kind of an ideal start. And um, the airfoils can be googled. You can look up uh, what does an airplane wing look like. That's a good start, and it'll show you how to defy gravity with um, stick and that. But that's usually for airplanes, and your stick will have too much lift. So it's a good idea to start with a general general domed convex shape up top and then slowly thin out more toward a lenticular lens until your flight goes level level is what your uh, level flight is what you're aiming for for people that uh don't really know what lenticular means can you describe that general shape yeah it 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 just means if you were to start off with a square board it wouldn't fly it would it would go for a, it would have so much air resistance and drag that it would just flop but if you imagine a a lens like a magnifying glass lens something like that where it's thinner on the edges thicker in the middle and it becomes more of an aerodynamic device as it the more it leaves from a square board to rounded it um and thicker in the middle it it becomes more aerodynamic just want to make sure that people get that clarified a a lenticular yeah it it just means you're thicker in the middle and it kind of trails off on either side a little bit and then you're going to round them over so you don't have any sharp edges that's correct that that sounds great okay do you do anything specific with the handle when you're shaping these Uh, a good idea is and and an easy start if somebody wanted to is to uh is to google uh a rabbit stick an american southwest rabbit stick where they often have a carved handle in there, which is um which is pretty easy to cut out with with modern tools if you do that um the handle can be a little more rounded it should fit your your hand um it's i would say uh, especially starting off it's more important to have the handle comfortable and rounded off more than aerodynamic because i um as I had mentioned earlier, it's the the end farthest away from your handle, the top end, uh, is the one that cuts into the into the wind. It's called the attacking blade. The it's the half that goes into the air first and controls most of the flight. Yeah, the the handle doesn't have to um, normally doesn't have to be skewed or shaped very specially. Just a little more a little more convex, a little more domed on top, a little more flat on the bottom. But um, it's a good idea to just round those off so it fits your hand well. Okay, so so narrow it down. Are you gripping these with just like a a full grip around it, or are you holding them like between your thumb and fingers and throwing them? Yeah, it's it's a great question, but it's it's another one that's hard to illustrate without video or yeah, it is. You know, to explain <laughs> this on you know during a talk is is hard to get. But here's um, Here's some examples that might um, that, that might make it make it clear for uh, listeners. Um, 
a modern boomerang is often so small and light that you can pinch it with your fingers and use like a pinch grip. If you can picture that. Yeah. Go into the air with, with some snap and spin. You want it to be spinning in the air. Uh, a hunting throwing stick is often too heavy for that, for that grip. And it does okay. your, all your hand around it um, in a, in a grip similar to what you would use for a hammer. So okay. and that's surprising to most, but it's, you, you do get all your hand around it. And um, they're usually heavy enough. If, if a stick is about, uh, let's say, for example, uh, two feet long and two inches wide, it's um, it doesn't allow for a fingertip pinch grip like a, a sport boomerang. So you imagine um, a visual tool would be to picture uh, grabbing it like a hammer. It's a little more wide and thin, but all your fingers get around it. And, and you throw level uh, with the ground. That's about a three o'clock angle on a clock, if you can picture that. And try to throw parallel with the ground. So your, your wrist will get a little, uh, try to get a little snap when you do it. So it gets it spinning. Sort of like you're doing with a Frisbee. You kind of snap it at the end to get it, get a little more rotation in it. Yes, but it's a palm up underhanded throw. Yeah. To that. Yeah. Um, if you're right-handed, it would be on your, on your right side, thrown around hip level with a, with palm up. Okay. Interesting that the cave, the ivory example found in a cave from 23,000 years ago, it had a roughed out uh, crosshatch section for grip on right there on the palm side, palm up <laughs> on as if a right-handed thrower was throwing it that way. And that's right where it's kind of roughed out for a grip. Huh. It's perfect. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I always love seeing these old, old examples, especially when uh, they're so old that you don't have like a historical like culture that you know anymore. Like we, we can go back to the Australian ones and you still, you have historical records of them using them and you still see a few examples. You said there's a few people making them still, but Something like this one in Poland's ivory one. No one has any idea about it. So it's fun to see uh, they've still got the characteristics like that. Yeah, that was that was amazing. Um, I'm so glad that fine um, showed up. And and many people were were um, just didn't understand it enough. Even in the museum field, I was very surprised to find out that uh, the current view is still the majority. Would uh, People would see it, even in the academic field, is just a stick that, that might go a little, you know, a little far across the ground as someone throws it and then fall to the ground. And, um, even in my own museum, I, I realized that, um, nobody was aware of how they actually worked. Yeah. And to, to go look at the original characteristics and, and that became the goal is to show that, um, uh, these tools were amazing and they worked really well and had a lot of physics to study and, and uh, science and engineering in there that um, it's really fun to play around with. I hope, I hope some, some people are moved to, um, to give this a shot and there's have it come to life. That's the goal with the episode, try and get people involved in attempting things, making things at least think about how things are made. But uh, it's not surprising that uh, some of the people you were talking about uh, in your museum and whatnot, don't really understand how they work. Cause I don't know your exposure to something like an arrowhead, even if you've never napped an arrowhead, as a archaeologist or something like that, you know what they're used for and how they're used. Something like a throwing stick is something that 
is less talked about and less known. So just fewer people are going to even have an, a grasp of how they are shaped and how they're used. That That is such a great point. That That's exactly what was happening. Uh, and you're, you're absolutely right. An arrowhead, I, I'll, almost anybody, everybody can picture what a bow and arrow looks like and how it works. And they've seen it. It was, uh, I think in, um, yeah, in high school, it was one of the PE classes. There were people could participate in archery. It's something almost everybody has has tried. And even and a big problem with this is the even the name. We're having trouble coming up with a good name now for it. Throwing stick that that implies such a a simple uh, device. You know, like there's a stick and you throw it. I wish yeah. we had a better name. A rapid stick is a better name, but it's a little too narrow. They were used for. Um, uh, bird hunting throughout the world and even large game hunting. Rabbit stick is a little better of a term because it throwing stick just sounds so basic. I think that's part of why it's, it's ignored. And I almost can't blame uh, folks in, even in museums for thinking they are simple. You, if you, op- and I might've been guilty of the same thing back then. If you open a, a drawer and you see a, a stick, a bent stick laying there, and the description says throwing stick. It, how would you know that it was anything but, you know, a stick that you just pick up and throw? It, it took a research um, and getting the knowledge out there to, or, you know, and, and a lot of diving in to find out that these were highly engineered um, aerodynamic devices, sometimes capable of going hundreds of yards um, in a perfect trajectory. Which is pretty impressive. Sure is. It's a hard thing to accomplish. I have yet yeah. to accomplish anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, after years, I'm only getting there. You know, it is hard. I've seen some of your videos. You got some that are flying quite a ways. Yeah, it took it took a while, and like I said, I, I had to stand on the on the shoulders of uh, of researchers that had done put in a lot more work uh, than I had. I want make, want to make sure I've I've given them credit here, but. Uh, and I would be happy to help anybody in the same way who who wanted to uh, to learn more to get pieces that um, are going pretty far. I have I had a piece. Uh, there's a video on a video clip on my website of a piece. Um, there were I I saw a, a Smithsonian example called I think it was Pine Tree Cliff. It was one of the um, in one of the four corners of the American Southwest. There was a an archaeological piece, and it had it had a bend in it that matched a natural uh, elbow branch that I had found in the woods back here. And, and I was like, Oh, I have to replicate that one. And I tried to follow the contours of the original. And um, as much as I could see some of the measurements from a long time ago, they don't measure how lenticular it is or how it's, they don't have a total measurement of all the contours. So you take your knowledge and get as close as you can. Um, and after a little tinkering, it was, it was going over a football field. Oh, wow. And uh, that's also fun. I'll imagine uh, you got to throw that in. It's not just science and interesting. It's uh, it is a lot of fun to uh, to see something, a stick from the woods, defy gravity and go over a football field straight. Yeah, I'd be excited about it. Um, where do you throw these things? There aren't very many places you can throw one. I mean, here I can go out in the desert uh, and throw it out over the sagebrush flats and whatnot. But where do you go? Or you can throw over a hundred yards and not be hitting things you're not supposed to. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I'm, I'm glad that was like the final thing you always have to bring up is you you can never throw these in a field where there are people around. That's true of um, sport boomerangs, but much more true of these throwing sticks. Remember, they were they were invented, made, uh, learned to to hunt things, to uh, uh, kill things. Even they're they're very um, deceptive in how in their ballistic power. They you hold one in your in your hand and you think, well, how is this? Stick is really thinned out. It's kind of it's lighter than a big club. How would this ha- have enough power to to do anything? And uh, so I'm looking for ways to uh, to test that um, to do ballistic tests. Um, we'll have to talk about that another time. That's something I'm, I want to look into to prove um, how dangerous these things can be. And so I, there there definitely can't be a human being or anything in the field you're throwing. Uh, we we go to local uh, soccer fields early in the morning or late at night when no one's around and double check that it's the field is completely empty of people and only woods on the far end. And that's, that's the only safe way to test these. Good thing to remember. Good thing to, to uh, make sure when you're testing these is yeah, make sure you do it safely and not throwing it near people or houses or anything like that. You actually just mentioned something I I had meant to to ask you about. It sounds like you still have some testing to do, but I was going to ask you if there's been any, testing to measure impact and how much force these actually generate when they hit. But it sounds like you still have some testing that you're planning on doing with that. Yeah, that's the big question. Um, I'm, I'm currently looking into, in fact, after this interview, that might be one of the things I do today. It's raining here. I wanted to do some research and um, I'm trying to finalize some, some instructional videos, some YouTube videos on how, how throwing sticks work. There's a, there's a lot of clips on my uh, website at Aquaquan Paleotechnics, but there's, I wanted to do, uh, I have a lot of those short clips I wanted to put into longer videos. And the, the, that was the one thing that was missing was um, how can I show what uh, ballistic power these have? So I'm, I'm looking into uh, uh, test devices now before I put these videos out. I want to, yeah, I want to throw the different ones. And especially the replica of that ivory uh, mammoth ivory uh, throwing stick found in the cave in Poland. I'm, I want to put my replica into a, um, a situation where I can break something and have that impact tested. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. I'd be real curious to see, yeah, what sort of impact and, and ballistics you get out of them. Uh, how long do you think before you're going to have these videos? You said you had you have you already done the throwing stick videos and you're just waiting on this portion of it. The I'm putting together a video on rabbit sticks um, and and f- focusing mainly on our ours here in the southwest and that might be done as early as tonight. Okay, which I'd had it done before this interview. I could say, hey, go here now. Oh Let's- no, just keep me apprised. I'll put a link to it uh, in the at the end of it uh, whenever you get it finished. So. Let me know when you get it finished and I'll include a link for people to go check it out. Oh, great. Thank you. That, that might be done as early as, um, as this evening. Okay. Yeah. In which case you'll have it done before I have this podcast episode out. So I hope so. <laughs> uh, um, anything else you want to, uh, that we've missed or neglected or haven't talked about in relation to throwing six that you want to cover? Well, you know, I would want to point out that I've, I've touched on some of the, um, the more advanced science and engineering of, of throwing sticks. So I, I, I would point out that 
Uh, first, that, that the term throwing stick sounds a little too basic. And then I, I, you know, I wanted to show how it was, there was much more science involved. It is very highly evolved thing. Yeah. Uh, but the last point is I wouldn't want that to scare anybody away from trying it. It, it. At the very beginning of learning this major part of human history. And that's, that's the why, because uh, right next to uh, stone tools, I think throwing a stick, it, it sounds so strange to say is, is probably the oldest human experience right next to making cutting tools and shelters is being able to throw something. It's one of the uniquely human skills. It goes back to the beginning of time. So if somebody wanted to experience that is to realize that the whole process is fun, even from the beginning, just to go into the woods and cut any, any heavy stick that's about as long as your arm and throw it around. You can immediately see uh, the ballistic power, the, uh, the distance, the, uh, the fun in that skill that's so much more than just throwing a, uh, a rock or, or, uh, or a basic stick. And then even, even the most basic thinning out of a curved piece starts to show some amazing results. So this is even on, you know, your first couple of days of trying the skill and even the most basic examples roughed out, start to go up to 40 and 50 yards. And the fun starts from uh, the beginning of the skill. So and 40 and 50 yards, I mean, yeah, you're not setting any record distances or anything like that. But if you were looking at it from a a hunting perspective, if you're out after rabbits or ducks off a lake or something like that, I mean, that's that's perfectly functional, too, which is about where I would classify most of my attempts at this point as they would have been a functional hunting implement. But I'm not going to be hitting anything very far out. I mean, it's yeah, 20, 30 yards is about max, but. Yeah, it, a lot of fun. That's great, by the way. Yeah. But, um, let's go ahead and wrap this up then. Uh, can you tell folks where they can find you, your website? I know you just mentioned your website, but um, can you mention again where folks can find you and point them towards some of your work and things like that? Yeah, thanks. The uh, The business I started is called Aquaquan Paleotechnics, and that's named after the Aquaquan uh, River and Reservoir that I, I live next to. It's a it's a Native American name. It's where I've spent uh, most of my life experimenting with these skills. So I thought it, it fit there. Um, o c c o q u a n Paleo Technics LLC. That's my website. the uh, The address is www.occpaleo.com ocpaleo.com we call it ocpaleo for short and in the last um year i've started a throwing stick page on my on that website um a, a section for the study of throwing sticks where i have some clips uh, and and i show examples from around the world and what they look like and how they were how they were used and um i'm going to be putting those into uh your youtube videos this week but if anybody wants to see what one looks like in flight or how this is different than a boomerang. I have um, some of those videos up uh, right now. Perfect. Yeah. I'll uh, point folks towards them. I'll go ahead and include a link to those over at uh, my website. When I, when I post this. Yeah. Just so people can, can find it in the show notes. I'll, I'll put a link to your website. And then also, like I said, I follow you on Instagram. So I'll put a link there. Are you on any other social media channels that you want to point folks towards? Uh, I started a YouTube channel, but um, 
a neighbor put a, an Instagram account on there for me. Okay. Uh, as uh, Acapaleo. And um, that's it right now. What's the name of your YouTube channel? Is it also Acapaleo? Yes. I'll put a link to that as well so people can take a look at it. Okay. Find it. It, uh, Acapaleo, O-C-C-P-A-L-E-O should be the way to look that up. And there's one full, uh, there's two uh, full YouTube videos. I do have it there now on Throwing Sticks uh, on YouTube as a start. I have I put um, a video about the testing of that mammoth ivory boomerang that I talked about earlier. And another one about Egyptian throwing sticks from King Tut's tomb. Okay. Yeah, that'd be a great starting place for people to, to look at a couple different examples and, and see how, how they're done. I'm going to have to go check those ones out. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. It's it's so great to uh, to meet you and uh, and talk to you today. You sound like somebody that has a got started in a similar way than I did. So, um, uh, indeed, same same two books too. Yeah, it's amazing. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Folkcraft Revival Podcast. As always, the show notes and links from this episode can be found over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash whatever the episode number is. I uh, should tell you right now in your, your podcast player what episode this is. I appreciate you tuning in. If you have any guest or topic suggestions or any other feedback for that matter, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email over at daniel at folkcraftrevival.com. If you want to help the podcast grow, the best way to do that is recommend and share it with others that have like interests. Second best, go give me a rating and review over in the Apple Podcast slash iTunes platform. Um, that's the biggest podcast platform, and doing it over there will really help me rise in the, the search rankings and show up to a few more people when they're looking for stuff. So, uh, In fact, while you're at it, just mash the subscribe button while you're there. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Now let's uh, get out there and make something. <laughs>